The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. You've been asking for this since we started this thing in, what was it, 2015. And now, at long last, we finally turn to the great country slash continent of Australia. Pip Williams, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me. A wonderful talk with a wonderful author today, Pip Williams, who began her career with a literary bang, the much-loved novel The Dictionary of Lost Words, a bestseller. She has a new novel out now, which we will hear all about, and we'll hear how things are going in literary Australia. But first, a reminder to send us your idea for a dream guest for the History of Literature podcast. We've gotten some suggestions already, and we're busy reaching out to coordinate these. We can't promise we'll talk to them all, but we're going to try to bring you a couple of these. One for the holidays. That's the promise. At least one by the time we hit the end of the year. A dream guest. Who would you most like to hear talk about books on the humble little podcast. Now, if only one would have, if only someone would have sent in the email with Pip Williams, then we could check it off the list. Maybe she is some of your dream guests. She certainly is a very fun person to talk to. Okay. How about some literary news? This one is a couple of months old, but in some ways it's timeless. Ancient books in Northern Italy frozen to salvage them from flooding. Huh? This was in the Emilia-Romagna region, my old home, my beloved old stomping grounds. And it happened during those terrible floods they had in May. Libraries were flooded with water and mud, and some precious books were submerged, devastating, a great loss for the world. Some of these manuscripts were more than 500 years old. Paper, as we know, is it's incredible, an incredible technology durable and flexible and really good at what it does when you think about it, but it's also fragile. Water is not its friend. And so volunteers worked with, this is, this is great. This is the best detail. They worked with the Carabiniere of the Cultural Heritage Protection Unit of Bologna. The Carabiniere, police officers, in Bologna's Cultural Heritage Protection Unit. I did not know. <laughs> I lived in Bologna. I did not know their police force had a Cultural Heritage Protection Unit. I need this to be a show. Law and Order, CHPU. Traveling around, busting forgers and art thieves, and in this case, there to lend a hand in a crisis, organizing efforts in response to an act of God. The Library of Forli, actually my very dear friends in Bologna, have a son who went to help the citizens of Forli after the flood. I wonder if he was part of this effort with the books. In any case, what happened was people transported these submerged books and manuscripts to some industrial-sized freezers provided by a company that packages frozen food. The company usually uses the freezers for ripe fruit and vegetables. They 
they get them there within three hours of harvesting to make sure they don't spoil. And they package them up and sell them in supermarkets. And with submerged books, it's similar to the fruit. You can prevent damage by freezing them as quickly as possible. Freezing helps to rid the books of excess water, and it allows you to dry them and and restore them to the best possible extent. I'm sure some of them can't be salvaged, but this gives you your best shot. The owner of the warehouses, the freezers, was in a position to charge an arm and a leg for this usage as the librarians really had nowhere else to go. And he provided the freezers free of charge. It's for the good of the community, he said, and it was consistent with his company's mission. Our factory is used to maintaining the best quality. Sometimes that might be fruits and vegetables, and sometimes it might be the writings of monks and scribes. Quality, either way. Bravo, Mr. Let's get Signore's name right. Mr. Piracini. Bravo, Mr. Bruno Piracini of the Orogel Company. The next time I'm in Bologna, I will seek out some Orogel product, products on the shelves, maybe some Carciofi or Cavolfiore. Tasty stuff. Speaking of tasty, this is a delicious conversation coming up. And also, speaking of the love of books, the love of making them and preserving them, and of course, reading what's in them. We will hear from Pip Williams about her own journey with books and writing and about the journey that two fictional sisters in her new novel make through their own literary adventure. Pip Williams, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now from Australia is Pip Williams, the award-winning and best-selling author of The Dictionary of Lost Words. She's here today to discuss her new novel, The Bookbinder. Pip Williams, welcome to the History of Literature. 
Thanks for having me, Jack. It's such a pleasure. So I want to ask where you grew up and what your childhood was like, and I, I suspect that books played some kind of role. So why don't we start with that? What were you like as a child, and were you a big reader? What kinds of things were you reading? Sure. Well, I was actually born in London and lived in Wales uh, till I was three, and then we moved to Australia because my dad was a surfer. So we were mm. following, we were following the <laughs> surf, um, <laughs> and we moved to um, a place called Manly in uh, Sydney, New South Wales. And I grew up on the beach, um, ah. and yeah, it was quite an idyllic lifestyle. Yeah. Well, maybe books didn't fit in then. Maybe you had enough to do. Well, no, they did. So my, my sister, who's, who's a couple of years younger, she was sort of fully into everything that the, you know, the seaside lifestyle offered. She was what we call a nipper, which was one of those life-saving kind of clubs. And hmm. uh, she, she surfed and she swam and she was amazing. Um, and I spent so much of my time in my bedroom with the curtains closed, <laughs> <laughs> reading books. Um, and when I wasn't reading books, I was horse riding, you know, I was right. going out to the countryside and riding horses. So I didn't make as much uh, use of the surf as, as the rest of the family, but I still really enjoyed living by the seaside. But I did read a lot. But having said that, I also have dyslexia. So mm. I came late to reading. I wasn't an early reader. Mm. Uh, but once I began reading, I read voraciously but slowly so mm. I always had a book in my hand and I would do anything to read I would get out I, you know mum would tell me to go and have a shower and I'd turn the shower on and sit on the toilet you know toilet with the toilet seat down and read a book for 15 minutes with the shower going and then turn the shower off and just sort of flick a bit of water around the bottom of my <laughs> hairline so mum thought I'd had a shower so I would do anything to read yeah. in, you know and but I did it very slowly. So I didn't consume as much as I would have liked to. Right. <laughs> sort of right. books, books everywhere. But yeah, I never stopped. Were you drawn to classics or were you reading mysteries or what kinds of books drew your attention that way? As a kid, I was reading, I was reading whatever I could get my hands on, but mostly children's books. I mm. mean, I really mm -hmm. loved children's books. My favorite books were the Trixie Belden oh, series yep. when I was little um, and I devoured them and probably read every book a few times. I loved The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I probably mm. read that 25 times. I also remember reading a lot of adult books, you know, books that I didn't quite understand or that scared me because mum didn't really care what I borrowed from the library. I went to the library a lot and would borrow books. Yeah. So mysteries and spy novels and things like that when I was still quite a young teenager I loved John le Carre when I was a teenager. Oh, I, yeah. You know, I loved, yeah, I, I would read anything. I would read the Sweet Dreams books when I was 13 and 14. And yeah. Yeah, I was pretty eclectic. And mm. I, I didn't start reading kind of classics until I was a young adult, really, other than what I had to read at school. And what I had to read at school probably put me off a lot of <laughs> classics for a few years right. because of the way they're often taught. You labor over them and there's no time to just enjoy them. I know. I, I hate to say it because I know how many teachers we have as listeners, although when I hear from teachers, <laughs> they say, yeah, this is not how we want to teach it either. But there is a kind of way I think it's, I don't know if it's to try to to make it seem like it's something productive or what it is about the way that 
that literature is read in middle school and high school that kind of turns students off of literature. They're, they're sort of reading as if they're trying to put together uh, the pieces of a puzzle or something rather than reading for the story and the impact. Yeah, I think so. There's a Billy Bragg. Billy Bragg is an English singer-songwriter, and he writes a song where he says, you know, if you take something apart to see how it works, it will never fit together again. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes think that's what happens in English literature classes at high school, is you tear a book apart, a really wonderful book, you pull it apart, and so that the reader, the teenager, can't actually see the story for all of its bits mm-hmm. and pieces. Right. They don't come away with a memory of this wonderful piece of literature, this wonderful story. They just come away with all of the bits and pieces. And I think that's part of the problem. I think sometimes <laughs> sometimes an English literature class should just be quiet time where you get to sit with your book. When the bell rings, you get up and you leave the class. Mm. And that should be it. <laughs> right. Right. Or uh, if if not, maybe students like you would say, uh, you know, raise your hand and and see if you could go to the restroom and then take the book with you and <laughs> find a few minutes yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. OK, so now were you also writing? When did you start writing stories? <laughs> I was. I You know, I, I can remember I've been writing probably since I was able to write. I was writing bad poetry. So every card to my parents or my sister for their birthdays would have a terrible poem (laughs) in it. And I wrote diaries very early on. I wrote little stories, but I never, I didn't, except for the cards, I didn't actually write any of these things for anybody but myself. Mm. And they were, like I said, I, I did have some trouble with the handwriting and the spelling and <laughs> yeah. and the sort of shape of words, but I didn't have trouble with composition. Dyslexia doesn't stop you composing; it just stops your words looking neat and tidy and right, right, and, and slow you down. But unfortunately, or fortunately, writing was the way I chose to express myself. I couldn't draw, you know, I couldn't dance, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't yeah. play a musical instrument. But what I did enjoy doing was putting words together. But I did it for myself. I never thought of writing as performative. I never thought of it as something that was necessarily for other people, except as a gift during those poetry right, <laughs> those right. cards. And when I was a teenager, I never thought of it as a career. My very first publication was actually a poem in a very popular teenage magazine called Dolly Magazine, which was any Australian listeners would absolutely know mm. what I'm talking about. It was the most popular young teenage magazine. And mm-hmm. and they published a poem of mine when I was 15, which was kind of extraordinary and thrilling. But I think of it, that was the first and last thing I published for 30 years. And I wonder, and people always ask, you know, did you think about being a writer then? And the truth is, I don't think I did. Mm. You know, I didn't know that it was a possibility. I, at that point, there were no writing kind of courses that you could do at university. I don't even think there were, you know, writing kind of centers or anything like that. So writers were kind of, they were this, this sort of elite, mysterious group of people. Mm. Yeah. So you didn't have any in your life. You didn't have a a grown-up around you who was a professional writer. No, not then. But Mm -hmm. I did later because my dad, sort of midway through his life, began writing. 
And he wrote short stories which were published in story magazines and he also wrote a couple of books, mostly for middle-age kids, chapter books and a book of poetry. So he did start writing. So I have a feeling that it was watching him do this thing after working and being in the middle of his life. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that that might have spurred me on to sort of follow the same dream, I suppose, that I may have actually inherited from him. Right. Was he doing that before or after you had the uh, triumph of the poem in Dolly magazine? I like to think after. So I like to think that maybe, yeah. You might have inspired (laughs) him. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Maybe I did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a sort of, you know, family family competition who yeah. gets there first. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. So moving toward your books for which you've become quite well known and celebrated, I'm curious, they're both set in Oxford. I'm wondering if you spent any time there or what is it about Oxford? Why Oxford and not Sydney or, or London or New York or anything like that? Yeah, that's a really good question. When I was doing the research, I was also thinking, why Oxford? Because I had to spend so much money (laughs) to travel from (laughs) Australia to Oxford to do the research. But um, no, the (laughs) the reason it's Oxford is because the story that I wanted to tell was all about the Oxford English Dictionary. Mm, And so it wasn't really the place that I was initially drawn to, though how lucky for me. (laughs) Yeah. The object I was interested in, which is the dictionary, does have its life in that beautiful city. That's right, yeah. Uh, There are a lot of university towns, but there is only one Oxford English Dictionary. Yeah, that's right. And so I had read Simon Winchester's book. Mm, mm -hmm. We call it The Surgeon of Crowthorn, but you call it The uh, Professor and the Madman. Yeah. And it was a really interesting nonfiction story about the editor of the dictionary and one of the people who sent in words with examples of how they had been used in text. And it was very interesting, but it gave me a sense of how the dictionary was actually put together. And I have to admit, I'd never thought about how dictionaries were made. Mm -hmm. And once I understood that every word in a dictionary has to have been written down for it to be in the dictionary at all, then I understood that the dictionary was probably a biased text. And it was this idea that got me thinking about what that might mean for women's words and whether they're missing or whether the meanings that they might ascribe to a particular word is missing from the dictionary. And that's where the story began. But to research it, I had to go to Oxford. And so in many ways, I didn't intend to write historical fiction in some ways. I wanted to write about the dictionary, which happens to be a story that is set in the past. And so that's what took me to Oxford. Mm. And then I did spend time in Oxford. So uh, like I said earlier, I was born in the UK, so I am a British citizen. So it's quite easy for me to sort of travel to and fro and stay there. And I have a lot of family and friends over there. And so I've been to Oxford now on three occasions where I've stayed for about a month each time and lived there and done research and walked the streets and gone into the Bodleian and the archives at Oxford University Press. And it's been an enormous privilege and just wonderful 
Mm. Wonderful if you're a word nerd. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. It's such an interesting idea. I'm fascinated by the OED as well. And, and the angle that you've taken on it, it kind of reminds me when you were talking about it, reminded me a little bit of studies they've done that medical research is heavily tilted toward problems that men will have. And there's been, historically, there's been a lot more resources poured into prostate cancer than breast cancer and things like that. And and it, it kind of is like thinking about it at the level of the word and a dictionary, which we almost kind of take for granted as if it's this immaculate book that just arose out of nowhere and that it you know, we forget that that it's human beings who put it together. It seems like it's just such a resource, almost like it's a, a picture of plants or something that has no agenda in it. But of course, yes. embedded in it is all of the decisions that go into it. And, and those are always, you know, they might be very well-meaning people, but they're coming at it with a very particular perspective. Yes, it's exactly right. And that's, it was like a revelation. I remember when I had the idea, I looked at the dictionaries that were on my bookshelf and suddenly realized that I had spent my entire life, uh, first of all, being told to look things up in dictionaries because mm-hmm. I, I did have issues with words, which I always found problematic because my spelling was so so bad that I often couldn't look a word up in the dictionary because I didn't know enough of the first letters <laughs> to find it. Um, so I had a problematic relationship with dictionaries in the first place. But one thing that had never wavered through my because I started writing this book in my late 40s. And so in all that time, I had never questioned the authority mm, of the dictionary. Right, right. I had never questioned its objectivity until that moment. And it was quite a revelation. Yeah. Um, and I knew it in that moment to be true that it was biased. Yeah. It wasn't a question, is it biased? I just wanted to know if the bias mattered. Right, you know, it doesn't right. matter, but men, basically, because the Oxford English Dictionary was a project that started in the 1850s. So at that time, the majority, I'm guessing at this, but I would say in excess of 90% of the texts that had been written until that time had been written by men, and not just men, but men of a particular class. Mm. And so all of the words that were being collated and that were being understood and that were having meanings written about them were words that had been put into a context by an educated man. And not just that, but the people who were then gathering those words and developing the meanings, the lexicographers and the editors, were all men. Mm-hmm. There were some women working in the, what was called the scriptorium. There were, there were definitely women working in the scriptorium, but they didn't have decision-making roles. And so, yeah, I was just fascinated by that. And because my background is in social science, so I'm a social science researcher. (laughs) So I I had just applied my sort of science brain to the data that was being collected for the dictionary and realizing if this was a scientific project today, uh, you wouldn't get it published because (laughs) because the data is biased. It excludes 50% of the the population. Right. And we're so used to the idea that that history can be biased, or even an encyclopedia, I think we would say, oh, well, that probably has a particular position or a slant. But when it comes to the level of a dictionary, we're really talking about the way people think, and it's it's at such a, a core level 
it's almost like the computer program that sits, you know, where the hard drive is talking to itself. I don't know exactly yes. what the term is for it, but there's, you know, there's no. a way. It's not the software that sits on the computer, but it's it's basically the deep roots of the computer. <laughs> that's sort of what we're talking about here. We are, and that's so topical at the moment because one of the things that we're starting to think about is is all of this AI mm, and what mm -hmm. AI means for our future, our near future and our sort of middle and distant future. And one of the issues that people are starting to consider is the gender and class bias right. in the programs because the people who are making the programs are usually men. Right. And a lot of the data that AI relies on in terms of, you know, it gathers information from the internet essentially and uses that to come up with its answers to our questions when we ask Siri something. But what it's relying on is often information that has been gathered or created by certain groups of people. And so that is going to create inherent biases and what we sometimes might call unconscious bias. This will be an unconscious bias within the system, if you like, well, dictionaries have an unconscious bias. We all have unconscious bias. And it's only when you sort of sit down and identify it that you realize how pervasive it might be. Mm. Right. Now, before I get in trouble with your public relations people, I want to sort of emphasize <laughs> that the book that we're talking about, The Dictionary of Lost Words, is really a story. And what we have here... I'll give the little uh, tag for it and, and tease people with the, the story that they can look forward to. In 1901, the word bondmaid was discovered missing from the Oxford English Dictionary. This is the story of the girl who stole it. So it's a lot more. Uh, you and I got kind of cerebral there talking about uh, the consequences and, and the underlying ideas, but it really is a, a story that is very exciting and people, uh, I think, will find it very moving as well. I hope so. And it was basically my way of understanding all those things we were just talking about. I just put a little girl under the sorting table where all the words were being gathered hmm. and defined. And I wanted to see how she might affect the words and how the words affect her as she grows into a young woman. And it is a story, you know, that's set in the early 20th century when so much was happening mm, in mm -hmm. the world. The women's suffrage movement and the, the Great War was looming. That's right. That's right. It was just such a wonderful setting for the story of a young woman. And so it is, a, yeah, I, I loved writing this book. I loved kind of uh, living through Esme, the main character, living through that time in history and reflecting on the language and reflecting on what was going on in the world and how that affects language. But as you said, it is a story. There's a love story in there and it's got all the elements, I hope, that keep people reading and engaged. Hmm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more about the new book, The Bookbinder. Okay, we are back. Pip Williams, the bookbinder. 
I understand, is a sequel. How does the bookbinder pick up the story that we left off in the Dictionary of Lost Words? Yeah, actually, I don't call it a sequel. I call it a companion. Oh, companion. Yeah, no, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, and the reason is because it doesn't follow on exactly. It doesn't have the same characters, Mm -hmm. though it does share a few characters. So the reason I call it a companion is you could actually read these books in either order. Though most people will read the Dictionary of Lost Words first and then the Bookbinder second. But if you read them the other way, that would be okay. And this story, the Bookbinder, is set during the years of World War I from 1914 until just after 1918. So it's a much shorter time span than the first book. And it's about a different woman. So the Bookbinder is about a woman called Peggy who's about 21 and she lives with her identical twin sister Maud on a narrow boat on the Oxford Canal and they both work as bindery girls at the Oxford University Press. So in terms of its relationship to the first book, it shares a location which is Oxford, though these women live in a a town called Jericho. So Jericho is the neighbourhood of Oxford where Oxford University Press resides essentially. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's a very working class place. Most of the people who live in Jericho actually work at Oxford University Press, and this is all historically true. And I was really interested to explore the life of working class women in particular during World War I. Mm. And I was still also very interested in this idea of who gets to access knowledge, who gets to make knowledge, and what happens when some people are denied that access to knowledge and information. And so my characters, Peggy and her twin sister, Maud, they work in the bindery where they're folding the pages that come off the printers and they're turning them into books. Mm. So they are the women who make the books that the scholars and that the scholars write, but also that the scholars read. And for Peggy, my main character, she's a really intelligent young woman. She's really ambitious. She would like nothing more than to actually be a student at Somerville College, which Mm. is the ladies' college that is directly across the road from Oxford University Press. But she can't. She left school at 12. Her trajectory in life is really to be a bindery girl, like her mother was a bindery girl, like her grandmother was a bindery girl. Going to university is a pipe dream for her. And she has her sister, who she thinks she needs to look after. But when the war starts, all sorts of cracks start appearing in the normal order of things and possibilities arise for Peggy, but they're not all possibilities that she can actually grasp. Mm. So, yeah, so that's the story. But I was really interested in, I, I got the idea for this story when I was doing research for the last book at Oxford University Press and I saw this beautiful black and white film called The Making of a Book at Oxford University Press And it goes for about 20 minutes and it's this wonderful black and white film with this funny music over the top. But during it, I saw the women folding the pages Mm. that have come off the printer Mm -hmm. into sections. And then there's this gorgeous bit of footage of a woman gathering the sections of a book into her arms. And she's very graceful and she's really well-dressed. And I wondered, does she ever stop to read what she's gathering? And then I wondered, do the women folding the pages stop to read the words on those pages? And that's when I got the idea for Peggy, my main character, because I thought 
I would stop to read. And then what would the consequences of that be for me? Someone would come over and tell me that my job is not to read the books, but to bind them. Because as soon as you stop to read, you slow down progress, you slow down production. Right. You know, and that's not her role. Her role in life is not to read the books. It's just to make them. Yeah, and I was fascinated by that concept. As I was reading about Peggy and in the opening pages when she hears that, that her job is not to, to read the books, I, I was reminded of uh, something I heard once, that the highest suicide rate in the United States was among all the occupations, the highest suicide rate was toll booth operators. And I always thought that that part of it was that they were sitting in this little booth as cars were going by all day long and everyone else was going somewhere and they were stuck in place. And I was kind of thinking of Peggy watching these books pass through her hands and thinking other people are going to get to read these and here I am, all I do is fold the pages and work with the glue and, and the binding, but I don't get to be one of the people who actually reads these books. Yeah, I think that's such a lovely analogy. And and the other one I often think of is this idea of water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Mm, you know, yeah, she right. she is in this very, <laughs> very unique situation yeah. for someone of her class and her education where she's surrounded by not just all of the classical texts, but all of the modern thinking of that time. And she has it literally at her fingertips. And so it, it was just such an interesting idea to write about someone in that situation, someone who actually has a thirst for it, mm. but is told they can't drink. Yeah. Yeah. I was fascinated by that. Okay. So... We've been talking about the way that history is often written by men, and, and there it can be difficult to kind of unpack our male-oriented thinking as we think about the past. And we did have women writers in the early 20th century and so on, but I'm wondering, maybe not so many women who were of this class of Peggy and Maud, and I'm wondering if, did you just project yourself backwards, or were you able to find any diaries or journals or letters or anything that would help you kind of see things through the eyes of a Peggy or a Maud? Yeah, that's such a good question because there are huge difficulties when you're writing historical fiction, but you're writing about people who don't exist in the historical texts or in the archives. So one of the reasons I was so interested in writing about the women who worked in the bindery was because I'd spent a lot of time in the archives of Oxford University Press researching not just the dictionary, but also life in Oxford, life at the press, the work that people were doing at the press. And to be honest, I could find a lot of information about the men who worked at the press. Mm. So the press probably employed about 800 people at that time, and about 700 of them were men. But there were about 100 women working there, and most of them worked in the bindery. And while I could find a lot of information about the work that the men did and their lives, I found very, very little about the women. What I did find were photographs which showed the women doing their work. I found this film that I just talked to you about. I had to search really hard for evidence that they even existed. And the places that I looked were actually in newspapers. Newspapers can give you a lot about 
just the, the life of a community. And so I went to the newspaper archives at the Oxford History Centre. I also looked at, because women in general, but working class women in particular, don't really exist in the historical record to the same extent as other groups of people might, one place I did look in terms of World War One experiences, because I was interested in women's experiences during World War One at home, I did look at women's art. So I looked at memoirs. So Vera Britton's Testament of Youth, for instance, was a really important text for me because my story, it includes a character, in fact, a character from the first book, her name's Tilda, she is in this book as well, and she becomes a VAD, a volunteer nurse in France, and she is a nurse at one of the British army bases in Etaple in France. And Vera Britton was actually an, a VAD nurse in France, and so her memoir becomes a really important source of information for me. She was also a student at Somerville College, which has a, a role to play in the story that I've told. Other things that were important were novels written at the time. Mm. Um, Dorothy L. Sayers, for instance, was a student of Somerville College, and she, you know, she obviously lived during that time, and she has written wonderful, just wonderful sort of detective novels, really. But they give a sense of what life was like in Oxford at that time. Mm. I also look at the poetry written at that time, and this is another one of those biases. If you look at anthologies of poetry of World War One. They are almost entirely made up of poems written by men, mm-hmm. even though a good quarter of the poetry that was published at that time was published by women, but they don't represent a quarter of the poetry that you see in an anthology. And so they've been excluded from our understanding of the poetic life of the war. And there was a wonderful collection of this poetry that was published in the 1980s, which I was able to look at as well. And the other thing I looked at was visual arts, so the art of women. But what was really, again, striking is that when you look at the histories of all of the women making the art, they are middle and upper class women. Mm. Because it's Virginia Woolf said it, to make art, a woman needs 700 a year in a room of their own. Mm-hmm. And essentially, working class women didn't have the money or the time or the place to make art. And so we, we also lack those artifacts of history from women of a particular class. And so then I have to go to sociological texts, (laughs) essentially, people who were studying the working class. Mm. Um, I have to, I was really fortunate in, I got in touch with a bookbinder in South Australia where I live, and he found a report. It was actually from America, but it was a report that was written by a woman researcher in 1913 about the lives of women who worked in printing presses and binderies Mm. in America. And although it was a different country, a lot of the conditions were very, very similar to the conditions that I was interested in writing about. And what was wonderful about this research report, so she was commissioned, I think, by the government to investigate the working conditions of these women. And she used women to help her gather the information, which was via interview with women who worked in binderies. And so I have the actual words of women 
1912 and 1913 who worked in binderies. So that was really useful as well. And you mentioned diaries. I didn't come across any diaries of working class women in the area that I was interested in, but Virginia Woolf's diaries from World War One were particularly useful, not because of the, the particular detail that pertains to her life, but because of how she wrote and what she wrote about in those diaries. What I found striking was how everyday life triumphs over the tragedy of war mm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. So, so much of her diaries in war years are just about ordinary things. Mm. And she talks about, you know, she talks about the lamps being kind of half painted out in order to sort of dull the light at night. And she just talks about going shopping and having people over and going for walks. She talks about all the things she would talk about outside wartime. And it made me understand that life just continues. Right. I suppose we accommodate the massive upheaval and then we get on with living. And that was actually a really important thing to understand, that the war wouldn't have been central at every minute of every day for women who just continued working Mm. and doing their thing. Yeah, so you use all of these other materials to try to get a sense of what life was like. Mm. I think of wartime as kind of, especially for young women, it also had the power to kind of disrupt the status quo because the men were gone or it would maybe open up certain jobs to them that might not otherwise be open or it might just disrupt the kind of relationship, courtship, marriage cycle that kind of settles in as a here's what's going to happen to you and here's when it will happen and and don't think too much about doing something different or, you know, war can disrupt all of that because suddenly there's different demographics shifting around and people making different plans and and the timing can be all thrown off by a year or two of this isn't the moment for you to go out and get married now. And, and maybe that opens a little breathing room for women who are hoping to do something other than just get married and become a housewife or whatever their destiny was at that time. Absolutely. You found some evidence of that? Yeah, completely. Because what war did, particularly World War One, and we're talking about the UK, Australia was very different. In Australia, women had had the vote since 1894 in South Australia and since 1901 for the rest of Australia. But in the UK, women were still fighting for the right to vote. And I think they were still fighting for the right to vote in the US as well. And so when war broke out, women still didn't have the right to vote, but war changed the way women contributed to society. Mm. Suddenly, as you said, all you know, so many men left England to fight in the war and so many businesses, so many manufacturing businesses, everything started to shut down. And if they didn't let women take up men's jobs, there would have been a crisis on mm. the home front. And so women stepped into work that before that time they had not been allowed to do. And not only had they not been allowed to do it, there was general discussion that they weren't capable of doing right, it. Right. And of course they, they proved themselves more than capable of doing men's work and they held the country together. So by 1918, there was no longer a good argument 
for keeping women away from the ballot box. And a law was passed where some women were now allowed to vote, but not all women. So the women who were allowed to vote in 1918 were women who had property or a degree. And you also had to be over 30 years old. And so working class women, again, were excluded from this privilege of voting, even though it was working class women who actually stepped into so many of the men's jobs. It was working class women who started working in the printing section of Oxford University Press, which they hadn't been allowed to do before. It was working class women who worked in the ammunition factories. It was working class women who drove the buses and became police officers. All jobs that they had not been allowed to do before and jobs that were necessary during the war. But it was not working class women who were given the right to vote in 1918. They had to wait an extra 10 years Mm. for that privilege. Yeah. Wow. But other things did change. And, and so my story does kind of, that is one of the things that I wanted to explore is when the social structures around you start to bend because of this massive social upheaval that was war and then the Spanish flu, what opportunities arise for a woman like Peggy? Mm-hmm. And there were many. And one of the opportunities actually comes from the classes actually starting to interact. So before World War I, the class system in England was very, very strict and entrenched. And even today, it still is. And even today, you have this sense of what's called town and gown in Mm -hmm. Oxford. So anyone who's been to Oxford, and I'm sure so many of your (laughs) listeners have, will, will probably have noticed this town and gown divide mm-hmm. and town basically are the people who live and work in Oxford their families have lived there for generations perhaps and gown are the people associated with the university and this divide was really stark prior to World War One, and in a way the working class and the or the town and gown wouldn't interact unless it was in a master servant situation mm-hmm. but when war came to Oxford And it really did because Oxford was a hospital town. A lot of the colleges were turned into hospitals and so a lot of the injured soldiers from France in particular would come to Oxford to recuperate. And so there were all these opportunities for women in particular to volunteer in these hospitals and suddenly you have opportunities where town and gown are mixing. They're getting to know each other. And so I have my character Peggy She meets a young woman called Gwen, who is actually a student at Somerville College, and she's as privileged as you could possibly imagine. But they become friends, and their friendship creates opportunities for Peggy. Hmm. Okay. Well, can I shift gears a little bit, if you don't mind? I don't mind. You go right ahead. (laughs) Okay. Because here's the thing. I have had Australian listeners who have been asking me to do an episode, an Australian-focused episode, for years. And I'm a little bit worried at this point that they're going to say, thanks a lot, Jack. You finally had an Australian author, and you spent the whole time talking about Oxford. (laughs) So let me ask you about the literary life in Australia. What is it like to be a writer there? 
How do you find the the bookstore, publishing, book club, academia? You know, what what is it like? Do you feel like you're a fish in water or are you swimming against the stream? Or what's what are things like in Australia these days from a literary perspective? I I have to say that it's I think it's fantastic mm. um, and there's probably a few reasons I'd say that first of all as a reader which is what I am before I'm a writer as a reader there are so many opportunities to engage not just with books but with the writers of books we have a lot of independent bookstores as well as chains and so on but but our independent bookstore industry is thriving. Uh, I think, and people really, particularly through COVID, they really, oh my goodness, they really stepped up. And Mm. so I think COVID was actually quite a good time for independent bookstores in Australia because they hand-delivered and they brought customers to them who have now stayed with them, I hope. We also have a really thriving writers festival circuit, I guess, Every capital city has a massive writers' festival, but there are writers' festivals all over the country. I've been to, I've appeared at 10 writers' festivals since April, and that's an indication of just how wonderful that scene is. And every single one of them has been crowded and well patronised and exciting, and it gives readers again the opportunity to hear from writers but also to interact with them and chat to them and and it gives writers an opportunity to meet each other because my first novel the dictionary of lost words was published literally two days after we the whole world went into lockdown i didn't have the opportunity to meet readers because i I didn't do any events everything was cancelled so with bookbinder i've because it's already published in australia it was published at the end of march and so i've been touring it over the last few months and it's just been extraordinary. I just have finally had the opportunity to meet a whole lot of other writers which I've really been excited about because I didn't do a creative writing degree Mm -hmm. and you asked about those and there are many and they're very popular and yeah and they also create a community around them but because I didn't participate in one of those things I'm not part of the community that springs up around creative writing courses, though I am a member of my state writers centre, which is also incredibly useful. So every state has a writers centre, which anyone can join, and they run workshops and have gatherings and provide all sorts of services that might help beginning writers in particular. But the other thing I think, which might be different between, say, Australia and the US and the UK is that there are still a lot of opportunities for writers who don't have agents Mm. to directly get their work in front of a publisher. Mm -hmm. So this is just hearsay from what I've heard from people in the US and the UK, that it's very difficult for your work to be seen by a publisher unless it comes through an agent. In Australia, almost all the publishers have certain days of the month where you can send in manuscripts without it coming through an agent. And all of my manuscripts, in fact, have have gone to a publisher without the help of an agent. So I wonder if that's a difference between two countries of the opportunities to mm, right. get work published without having that agent's help. Of course, agents 
are still incredibly helpful <laughs> right. because it's easier to get your work in front of a publisher if you do have an agent. And, of course, they can help you craft your manuscript and polish it and all those sorts of things. But mm -hmm. I think that there might be more opportunities in Australia to publish in that way than there are in other right. places. Agents, for all the helpfulness that they have, and getting, I'm sure they help to weed things out. And I'm sure publishers in the U.S. and U.K. are very glad to have that kind of filter to to weed out some of the, the amateur or the early efforts of people and so on. But it is another layer of gatekeeper. And it is a kind of agents have to be guessing what they think publishers will like. And so yeah. it can kind of lead to a, well, you know, here's here's what they took last time and here's what I see in the marketplace. And if it kind of deviates from that, it might be a tough sell. And so I think I'm either not going to take it on or I'm going to ask the author to make it more like something that I know has sold before and, and so on. And, and you wonder if, publishers and editors in Australia are getting more of the a little bit wilder or a little bit less tamed, uh, so to speak, manuscripts and just fresher ideas that don't come through that vetting process. Yeah, I think that's absolutely possible. And so, and I know my publisher in Australia, which is an independent publisher, and they've been fantastic. And they work really well with my publisher in the US and the UK so that I get editorial input from all of those publishers. And as a writer, I really value that combined editorial input and I really value that they work together. But my publisher, yeah, sort of saw my work straight from me. And so there was no filter through an agent. And I know that they have picked up lots of other great books and the other publishers around Australia as well pick up other books from the so-called slush pile all the time. Or through the other thing that I, I'm sure happens in other countries as well, but the one thing that I really value in Australia are the, the many opportunities to do writing residencies mm. and fellowships mm -hmm. that you can kind of apply to do. Sometimes you can win grants to do them or you can just pay to do them yourself. But there are also a wonder, some wonderful opportunities that are partnerships between publishers and writing retreat kind of places so that the publisher can mentor some writers, some beginning writers, to see if they can get a manuscript up to that publishing level. And so there's so many different opportunities and pathways to publishing in Australia, which isn't to say it's easy. Mm, <laughs> I right. think it's still difficult, but I do like the variety of pathways that you can be a part of. Mm. Well, and I don't mean to downplay, I'm sure when you were submitting your manuscript, you were sure to mention that you had published a poem in Dolly magazine, and that probably helped open some doors that might not be open to other people. Oh, I, I, I have gone to town on that. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I, I actually have always mentioned it in any cover letter that I've published a, a poem, very imaginatively titled, I should say, 15, um, when I was 15, and it rhymed. <laughs> so, 
what what I think people are most grateful for is that I don't actually reproduce the poem in my cover letter. That was, uh, yeah. <laughs> they probably know it by heart, as uh, fans. <laughs> there probably were fans of yours waiting for your manuscript oh, to come in their I'm door. I'm sure they were. <laughs> I'm sure they were. <laughs> Okay, well, the books are called The Dictionary of Lost Words and The New Companion, The Bookbinder. Pip Williams, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jack. It's just been really good fun. It was lovely to get to know you. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. My thanks to Pip Williams for joining me. Do check out her books. The Bookminder, the new one, and might be time to read the first one, The Dictionary of Lost Words. Hopefully we made the case for both of those today. We have some good episodes coming up on the History of Literature podcast, so do follow us wherever you can and hit that little five-star button if you're so inclined. We're closing in on a 1,000 ratings on Apple. A nice milestone. We do appreciate your generous support. Send us your suggestions for guests, a dream guest at historyofliteraturepodcast at gmail.com or head on over to historyofliterature.com where we have a contact us link. You can use that to send us a message. Very convenient. Okay, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.